Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of instruction. By our nature, we long for justice, and this desire is good. However, as sinful men and women, our hunger for righteousness can easily turn into a thirst for vengeance or victory. Instead of seeking the righting of wrongs, we pursue power, dominance. It's a desire that is hard to express in words because it's something we feel rather than think. As children of Adam, we want to be on top of the mountain. We want to be the king of the hill. And we want to throw down anyone who would keep us from that place. Now, our culture encourages that desire and disguises it with words like justice, but it's nothing of the sort. True justice requires biblical wisdom, a wisdom that promotes humility, mercy, and love. Few possess that kind of wisdom, the wisdom that's necessary to deal justly with others. And no one has the wisdom to rule with perfect justice, righteousness, and equity on a universal scale, save one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can counteract this problem by seeking to conform our thoughts to God's thoughts, by thinking His thoughts after Him as we meditate on His Word, and especially as we learn to be a disciple by following Christ and learning from Him what it means to live wisely in this life. But the problem is that this effort will place us in a significant minority. You see, as we acquire the wisdom that is required to deal justly with others, We will forfeit the power that is required to enact it broadly here and now. Moreover, as we follow Christ, we will also endure injustices on His account because we live in a culture that by and large rejects His wisdom. Nevertheless, Christ assures us that a day is coming when He will right every wrong, when He'll set it all right, and that day has not yet come. While we wait, we will be opposed We will be hated. We will be excluded and reviled and spurned as evil on His account. And so what are we to do? When faced with these challenges, our natural inclination is either to retreat or to retaliate in kind. Yet Christ calls us to a different way. If we are to follow Him as His disciples, we must learn to follow, not by seeking to right wrongs in our own strength, nor by fleeing from those who would harm us, but by loving our enemies and by leaving the righting of wrongs to God. In short, as disciples of Christ, we must learn to love our enemies, for God has so loved us. And so Jesus will teach us in the passage that is before us this morning. So if you found your place in Luke chapter 6, would you follow along with me, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we do acknowledge that you, O Lord, are merciful. And you, O Lord, are the one who is good and kind to those who are ungrateful and evil. Likewise, to us who were once your enemies, in your kindness and in your mercy, you've made us your friends and you have made us your children. And so we pray, because of this, that you would conform us to your image by conforming us to the image of your Son, the perfect Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we hear his words, as we respond to his words, we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us how to follow him by living a life that is like him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at Jesus' Beatitudes and his woes. And it's important to recall that these words were spoken in the context of persecution. You recall his final beatitude where he said, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus acknowledged that his followers would be hated by people in their own time, in their own generation. And yet he wanted them to know that they were blessed because of this. He told them to rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But Jesus also pronounced words of woe. Words of woe upon those who reject him. Words of woe upon those who would rather trust in themselves, would rather trust in their wealth or in what they have or in their good name and the praise they receive from others. And as Christ's disciples, it's easy to hear those words of woe and take them the wrong way, to hear them and rejoice in righteous indignation and say, yeah, they're going to get what's coming to them. And that's not what Jesus would have us do. It's not how he would have us respond. It's not how he would have us think. So you imagine yourself driving down the road and you witness a driver driving at high speeds, 100 miles per hour, weaving in and out of traffic, recklessly endangering the lives of others. Justly, you will feel anger with that person as he imperils the safety of those other drivers on the road. But if then you witness that person gets into an accident, causes harm to himself and maybe to others, you will recognize that this is the consequence of his foolish recklessness. But if you have a healthy way of thinking about it, you won't rejoice in that. You'll feel sorrow and pity for him. You'll feel the kind of feeling that is expressed when someone says, woe, woe to that person, because you recognize it did not have to be that way. The person didn't have to embrace that foolish course of life, and now he has come into disaster. That's the sentiment that should arise in us when we hear or when we speak words of woe, not rejoicing in the plight of another, but sorrow, that they should have such sorrow because they rejected Christ. But if you are one who suffers at their hands, it's easy not to feel that way. It's easy to feel like now they got what was coming to them. Now they got their comeuppance. And it's easy to look at that day and say, 
you've got a day of woe coming to you, where we lose all sense of what that word means. And that's why when we begin our text this morning, Jesus begins with that word, but. But I say to you who hear. But I say to you who hear. Though he's given us this eternal perspective, one that involves both blessedness and woe, one that involves both blessing and cursing, that is blessing and judgment that is coming. Nevertheless, he would have us think rightly in light of those things. And so he says, but I say to you who hear. He's also addressing those who are not just in earshot, but those who rather hear as those who want to receive his word. People who will be hearers and doers of his word. We'll see this all throughout Luke's gospel, even as we come to the end of this great Sermon on the Plain. We'll see how he emphasizes that his disciples are not just those who hear and go away and forget, or hear and respond as if this is a stimulating discussion, but they're the ones who hear and receive the word and seek to do what it is that Christ calls them to do. He calls us to hear and to do by thinking differently about those who oppose us, namely, by loving them. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. We must acknowledge we're not predisposed to think this way, nor are we predisposed to act this way. You see, love is not simply a way that we feel. It's not simply something that we think. But it's something that flows forth into actions. And Jesus puts the emphasis on those actions as he calls us to love our enemies. He doesn't just say, I want you to feel some kind of strong emotion to these people who are mistreating you. He's saying, I want you to love them the way that God loves you. And when God loves, He acts. He shows His love. His love flows forth with something. You think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world. It doesn't end there. That He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God's love is displayed in the things that He has done, most notably in the sending of His Son. And so too, Jesus calls us to love our enemies, not merely in the way that we feel toward them, but in how we live toward them, to love them both with our words and our deeds. Look at the way He describes this love. Do good to those who hate you. This morning I was reading a bit of a passage written by uh, Corrie Ten Boom, about her travels. If you don't know who Corrie Ten Boom was, she was a woman who was, uh, who was put in a concentration camp because she had hid Jews during the Holocaust, because she had helped them to try and escape the Nazis. And because of this, she was arrested, and she was cruelly treated. And yet she was a believer, and she learned from her sister during her time in that camp the importance of loving her enemies, and displayed this in a remarkable way Later in her life, when as she would go around talking about forgiveness, one of the men who persecuted her, who mistreated her in that concentration camp, came to her and asked for her forgiveness. She talked about how difficult it was to forgive him, but she ultimately found it within herself to do it. She did good to him. She forgave him. And in this passage, she was reflecting on that and then writing about an experience that she had as she was traveling in Africa. And there was a man who had come to, uh, to one of her talks, and his hands were bandaged, they were burned. And when she asked him, what she found out had happened was that 
his neighbor, for some unknown reason, had come and set his, uh, his thatched hut ablaze. And as the man was trying to put out the fire on that thatched hut, the wind blew the fire to his neighbor's thatched hut, and it caught a blaze too. And that man, being a Christian, went and put out the fire on his neighbor's hut. He did good to that man who had set his own house ablaze, and his hands were burned. His hands were terribly misfigured because of this. And what had happened in that as time went on is that he came to hear uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom speak, and he told her the story, and then he lamented the fact that this man had then been put into prison, that he had been arrested and put in prison because of this. But he wasn't happy about that. He was sorrowful. And he told Corey Ten Boom his sadness because this man was a gifted man, and he had hoped that he might come to Christ. And so in that moment, they prayed for this man. And as it happened that Corey Ten Boom, the next uh, week, was able to go to that prison and speak there. And this man was the first person to accept the gospel and come to Christ. And she told him the story that her, his neighbor, whom he had so sorely mistreated, wanted him, nothing more for him, to come to Christ and to serve with him in spreading the gospel. And as Corey Ten Boom tells the story, this man said, that's how it will be. Do you see what love for enemies can do? Do you see what love for enemies looks like? Do you see what it's like to follow Christ as a disciple? One does good to the one who causes him harm. One speaks good to the, and well of the one who causes him harm. One blesses him even as he's cursed by that person. One prays for that person even though he's abused by that person. This is the life to which Jesus calls us. It's a beautiful picture, and yet we all must admit it's very difficult for us to put this into action. We're not predisposed to it, and it's hard for us to understand how to apply it in our own context. How do we live a life where we bless those who curse us? The most significant way that we can do that is by holding forth the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. That is, by sharing the good news of what Christ has done for us with them so that they might also believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, to bless someone is not just a well-wish. In the Old Testament, when you see that someone blesses another, they really believe they are communicating something good with their words to that person. For example, in Genesis chapter 28, before Isaac sent Jacob to his uncle Laban. He said in Genesis 28, verse 3 and 4, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. As He spoke this blessing to His son, Isaac called to mind those things that God had already declared, the promises that God had made, and he said to, to Jacob, may God bless you with those promises. He knew that there was power, not because he spoke the words, but because indeed God had promised. He had promised to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his offspring afterward. And so Isaac communicated a blessing that was commensurate with, God, with what God had promised to do. 
In the same way, when we present the gospel to our neighbors and our friends, we are holding forth the means by which God will give them everlasting blessing. And we are calling them to embrace that and to receive that by faith. And that is a way for us to bless those who hate us, even if they refuse it, even if they reject it, even if they say that we are bigots for having suggested that there's only one way to eternal life, even if they say that they would never spend a day with us because we would believe such a gospel, such good news that would be so exclusive. Nevertheless, though they think it's not loving, it is a mark of supreme love to hold forth to others who are perishing the means by which they might find eternal life. This is how we can bless those who curse us, how we ought to do it. The world won't see it like that very often. I'm reminded of a conversation I had my freshman year of college. A friend of mine whose uncle had come to Christ was constantly sharing the gospel with them. And she was lamenting it, thinking how cruel and how heartless he was to always be hitting them with the gospel. It's the way she put it. And I challenged her, just think about it a different way. You may not believe that, but your uncle believes that you're perishing. He loves you, which is why he always talks about it. And you know what? She'd never thought about that, which seems so obvious. Changed the way that she thought about what he was saying. The world won't see it as love, but it really is love when we share the gospel with others. So let us be that kind of people who love our enemies by blessing them with the good news of Jesus Christ. And not just that, let us be those who bless them by praying for them, not just speaking good words to them, but speaking good words on their behalf. See, that's what Jesus teaches us here when he says, pray for those who abuse you, those who mistreat you. And here this is in the context, I remind you, of persecution for the sake of Christ. We ought always to pray for those who mistreat us. But Jesus is not necessarily saying that in any and every context that we should put ourselves into the blaze, into the fire, when we are mistreated by someone else. We ought to, in many circumstances... Retreat to safety, to remove ourselves from a dangerous situation, from the danger that someone might put us into. But here, in the context of being a disciple of Christ, we can expect that people will mistreat us. And even if we put ourselves in a safe place, at some point, they will come looking for us. If we don't experience that in our country, in our context, we see it, surely enough, in other contexts, And here Jesus teaches us that we can do good for them by recognizing that ultimately, if they are to come to Christ, it will be a gracious gift of our Heavenly Father. And so we pray for them. We pray good for them. We pray that God might bless them, that God might do good to them. And in so doing, that God might bring them to a true and real faith in Jesus Christ. We always can go to our Heavenly Father We always have His ear in this way. And we always can bring these kinds of requests for those people who despise us. That God would make enemies of the cross friends and children of our Heavenly Father. He has a history of doing this. 
We see it in so many examples. We see it in the example of the Apostle Paul, who was still breathing, breathing threats against the church when God stopped him on the road to Damascus. We see it in the example of the very first converts to Christianity. In Acts 2.23, Peter could say of them, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Indeed, we see it in our own story. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, do you hear the words of enmity, the words of hatred? We were alienated, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. God has now reconciled in His body of flesh, that is, Christ has reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We were enemies of God. We were hostile to Him. But He has made us His friends and He has made us His children because Jesus Christ in His body on the cross broke down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between us and our Maker. Christ has reconciled us to God through His death. He's made peace between us and God by the blood of the cross. And He has brought us near to God through faith. This is the kind of thing that our gracious Heavenly Father has done for us and does day by day. So we ought to pray for our enemies. We ought to pray for those who oppose us, that God would graciously grant them life. We ought to love our enemies. Now, Jesus here is going to give us instructions on how we might actually put this into practice. He's going to give us illustrations. And here as Jesus illustrates what it means and what it looks like to love our enemies, He's reframing our perspective, just as the Beatitudes and the woes reframed our perspective to eternity and judgment and the blessedness that is had through Christ. So, too, these instructions reframe our perspective away from ourselves and towards others, towards God and His purposes. So Jesus says this to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. These are practical examples of ways in which we can do good to others. Now, when Jesus says to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, He's not saying that if you're walking down the street and someone punches you in the jaw, stand up and say you missed one. No, 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 no. Rather, what He's doing is He's saying that that thing that led to that insult or that led to that strike that we should stand up and continue doing that thing. Remember, this is in the context of being persecuted for our association with Christ. The idea is that if because you're a disciple of Christ, someone insults you with a slap on the face, or if because you're a disciple of Christ, someone knocks you down, punches you in the nose, don't retreat from that in fear and don't stand up and retaliate with a punch to his face but be willing to do the thing that led to your persecution in the first place, that led to the insult or led to the strike. Be willing to stand up and declare your allegiance to Christ Jesus once more. 
Be willing to hold forth the gospel to that person. And if that leads to another strike, you are already prepared to offer the other also. It's not something you weren't prepared to receive in the first place. It's the same idea with one who takes away your cloak. Don't withhold your tunic either. I'm not saying that if someone robs you, steals your car, that you need to find out who did it so that you can go knock on his door and say, here's my wallet too. That's not the idea. The idea is in our association with Christ. If your property were to be plundered, as happened so often in the early church, count it as nothing. Be ready to suffer the loss of all things for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. As Paul said, he was in his letter to the Philippians. Be ready to receive those kinds of abuses, to be mistreated in this way. And when he says, give to everyone who begs from you, he's not saying that we shouldn't exercise good stewardship of the resources that he's given to us. But he's saying that in our exercise of stewardship, our first thought should not be, how do I preserve what's mine? How do I make sure that I don't lose what I've saved up for some other purpose? How do I ensure that I protect numero uno uno first? My first concern is not for myself, but for the one who is in need. You see, it's helpful perhaps to put this into the context of what we see in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, we see instructions there concerning how to treat uh, uh, an Israelite, a fellow Israelite, who has fallen into poverty. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 through 12, we read, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns with your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, And your eye looked grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land." You see, in that context, in that Israelite context, what Jesus was teaching the people to do was to adopt the mindset that they were taught to have in Deuteronomy 15. That when a person, another Israelite, a brother, fell into poverty, that they were to be willing to help him, to lend to him, to give to him, to pull him out of poverty in that way. And they weren't to think, well, the seventh year is coming. You see, that was a year when all debts would be canceled and released. And since the seventh year is coming, it's the sixth year or the fifth year, I really don't think I'm going to get paid back. And so I'm just going to not help him. I only help people in the first and second year. There would be a temptation to think that way in Israel. They were taught, don't do that. Open wide your heart. Help people who are in need. Give to that person sufficient for his need, they were taught. And of course, that implies that one has what is needed and one is able to give it. What Jesus is doing that's different here is he's saying it's not just about the ones you count as your neighbors. It's not just those who are 
fellow Israelites. It's not just those who are fellow Christians. It's your enemies too. When they come begging, when they come asking you for help, there is an opportunity to do good to those who hate you. That's what Jesus is teaching us. And of course, it is right to exercise careful stewardship of the resources He's given us. If my daughter comes to me and begs me that she hates the things we serve her for dinner and every night she just wants cheeseburgers and ice cream, that's her plea. That's what she's begging of me. I know it would, be, it would not be loving for me to indulge her desires. She may beg me. And Jesus is not saying, satisfy that request. We're to do this in a way that's loving. What he's doing is he's turning our eyes away from ourselves so that when I say to my daughter, no, you're going to eat what's provided, I know that it's for her best, for her nourishment and for her growth. And if someone comes and asks of me something, asks of us something, and we know it's not really for their good, it's not wrong to steward our resources and deny that request in that context. But we're not to think in such a way where we say, I just really don't want to do it. I just really don't want to help this person. I just really want to hoard what's mine. Or I don't really like that person. We're to do it in a way, steward our resources in a generous way where our mindset is away from ourselves, our eyes are away from ourselves and directed towards our needy neighbor, our needy enemy, our needy brother or sister in Christ in a way that is for their good and for God's glory. And we'll have to think difficult, in difficult ways and complex ways about how to apply these things in our own given context. I'll be surprised if every one of you faces regular slaps in the face or if people are regularly coming in and demanding your coats. But we need to, we'll need to figure out in the days and months and years ahead how to apply this in the context in which we are called. And yet it's clear that what Jesus is doing is He's directing our gaze away from ourselves as we think about how we ought to apply these questions. And if we do think of ourselves, we have the golden rule by which we can do it. What we read in verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's not the way that the people in the Roman world or in Israel would have thought. If they were to write that rule, they would say, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or a better way of, so that others will do what you want to you, do to them. We express this in our own language when we say, after doing a favor to somebody, you would have done the same for me. As if that's the basis for why we did good to our friend or neighbor. Well, you'd do the same for me. That's not the way that Jesus teaches us to think. Rather, he says, as you wish that others would do to you, you might say, regardless of whether they do it to you or regardless of whether you think they'll do it to you, how you wish they'd do to you, irrespective of all those things, do so to them. That's the way that Christ's disciples are to live, by showing love to others. And you see the example, how the contrast obtains as we look at the way in which the world thinks, as Jesus describes it. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? You could translate this idea of, what kind of grace is this to you? What kind of favor is this for you? This is the idea. That's not grace. 
It's not wrong to lend to someone in the hope that they might repay. It's just not grace. It's not wrong to love those who love us. It's just not grace. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. It's common in our world. Nothing about that kind of action distinguishes Christ's disciples from anyone else. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? What kind of grace is that to you? It's not grace. It's not love for anyone else. It's just remuneration. It's just repayment. You do good because they do good to you, and it's an equal exchange. Even sinners do the same, Jesus says. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, so what? Big deal. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way we are predisposed to think. We do what we expect others to do unto us, not what we wish that they would do to us. If we could be very clear about what we would wish, we would wish that others would treat us with grace and kindness, that when we need it, they would show us mercy, even when we don't deserve their favor. And so we're to treat them likewise. Now I want to focus on this idea that this is grace. That I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, do this so that you might earn the favor of your heavenly Father. But it can be easy to read it that way. That idea of what credit to you is this? What favor? There is this idea of receiving a reward from our Heavenly Father, receiving something good from our Heavenly Father. But we need to understand that this is not repayment because we do good to our enemies. It is purely grace. It is purely something that we receive that we don't deserve. This is the ethic of the kingdom. The ethic of Christ's kingdom is based upon grace, and we need to understand this. Grace is God's undeserved love to sinners. He gives us what we do not deserve. He gives to us without seeking from us anything in return, as if we could give him anything. As he said to Job, who is first given to me, that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, Job 41.11. Likewise, as Paul proclaimed when he preached in Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There is nothing that you can give to God that is not already his. He does not tell us this because he wants something from us that he would not otherwise have. This being true, there is nothing that we can give him that would make him, that would put him in our debt. There is nothing that he needs from us. And yet he gives us everything that we have. Everything we have is a gift of his grace. We don't deserve it. He doesn't owe it to us, but he lavishes good things upon us. This is the kind of love, the kind of grace that Jesus calls his disciples to show to others. The Christian gives not in hope of an earthly return, but because he has a heavenly reward. So he doesn't give in hope of a heavenly reward. He gives because he has a heavenly reward, because the kingdom of God 
is His. And that enables Him to count as nothing any earthly return that He might receive. He loves and lends, not with any expectation of repayment from the one loved, but with the hope of a heavenly reward that depends on nothing but God's grace. Ultimately, He loves and gives and shows grace to others because He has known and understood the grace of God and would seek to be like His heavenly Father. And this too is a great grace. What amazing grace it is that we can call Him our Father. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's grace. That's a credit. That's favor. That's love. What kind of love that is. What an enormous privilege for God to say, you are his son. You are his daughter. But parents are like their children. Parents should bear the image of those whom they call mother or father. Just like my children act like me or act like my mother and look like me or look like my mother in various ways, so too we should look like our Heavenly Father. He is gracious to those who are ungracious, those who are unthankful. He is gracious to those who mistreat others, who do evil deeds. He showers them with kindness. And you want proof? Jesus gives us the proof as recorded in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Every morning when the sun rises, there's your proof. Every time the rain falls, there's your proof. God causes the sun to rise on the good and evil alike, on the just and unjust alike. He sends rain. He gives crops. He nourishes the fields of the just and unjust alike. And we are to go and do likewise. You see that in this ethic, grace does not flow in two directions. It doesn't flow from us to God. It only flows in one direction, from God to us and from God through us to others. God also shows His grace to others by giving, by calling His disciples, by calling His people to show forth His love in a world that does not love. And in this way, God makes His grace to flow not just to us, but through us to the watching world. We don't earn His love, just as the Beatitudes did not teach that we earned that blessedness because we were poor, but rather that we are blessed in spite of our poverty. So too, we do not earn His favor. We do not earn His grace because we love our enemies. We love our enemies because He has been gracious to us so that we might indeed be children of our Heavenly Father. That's the life to which Christ calls us as His disciples. This is the ethic of the Christian life, not based on retribution and remuneration. We do not work in order to earn. We do not give in order to receive. We give because we have received. We work because we were given what we did not earn. We love, as John says in 1 John 4, 19, because He first loved us. Now, if you are hearing this, and you are not yet following Christ, you're not sure. You're considering whether you might follow Him but you're not quite sure whether this is the life that you want to pursue. I simply want to ask you to consider this thought. 
Is there not something attractive in this way that Jesus has laid out for us and modeled in Himself? Is it not so utterly different, so remarkably superior to any vision of life the world offers us? Is it not better than anything that the world would give us? To be sure, some of us would think we would prefer a world in which everyone simply got what he deserved. But as we reflect on our lives, we must realize that we do not want what we deserve. If every wrong we've ever done were counted and presented before Holy God, we would see that after the very first wrong listed on the list, we have fallen under His condemnation, and justly so. What we deserve is eternal wrath, eternal condemnation, eternal judgment. But He has shown us mercy. For He has not already called us to account, but has given us time. And He gives every good thing to us that we have in this life. But a day will come when that bill comes due. Jesus has paid that bill, and He calls us to accept His offer. He didn't have to give His life for us. The Son of God did not have to become a man. Our Lord and Maker did not have to become a friend of sinners, but He did. He became a friend of sinners. He took the likeness of human flesh, and He died on a cross for our sins so that our debt might be expunged completely and finally and forever. He calls us to this beautiful life and enables us to live it. So if you're hearing these words and you have not believed this, simply call on you now. Believe it. Receive it. Trust in Him and you will be saved. God will work in you to conform you to His image so that you can live this beautiful life of love, showing to others the love that He has shown us. Now as we come to a close, let me address those of you who are following Christ again. Let me seek to apply these words in our present context because it simply is true that these are difficult words to put into practice. It's difficult to figure out how do we love our neighbors in our own situation. And in these conversations, we often ask questions about our rights and about the right of self-defense and about pursuing justice in the courts and seeking justice from our elected representatives and these kinds of situations that often arise in our lives. Is Jesus simply saying, don't do that. Don't seek justice in this life. Let me argue, no. That's not what he's saying. And if that were what he was saying, so many examples that we have seen in our lives would not make any sense. One of the things that we see so often is that Christians are persecuted, but they don't simply just roll over and take it in the way that we might imagine it. They do endure the persecution, but they also stand up and they rightly seek justice in their context. We can look to historical examples. And I want to, this morning, look to a couple historic examples historical examples as well as examples that we've seen in our own context and in our own day so that we might understand how we might apply these kinds of instructions in our own life. You see, the two historical examples that come to mind are a man named Justin and a man named John Calvin. Both men wrote great books that have lived down through the centuries and that are read by Christians still today. Justin lived around the, in, the, in the second century, 
between the years roughly of 90 and 170 A.D. And he was ultimately martyred for his faith, killed. In fact, we call him Justin Martyr, not because his last name was Martyr, but because he became a martyr. And yet, in his context, he wrote a book that we call the First Apology. And that book he addressed to the emperor in Rome, to Marcus Aurelius. And the plea of the book was simple. Stop killing us. Stop persecuting us the way that you are doing. But the way in which he made that argument was not by saying, well, we don't really believe what they believe, nor did he try to lead a revolution to defeat this unjust rule in Rome. But rather, he addressed this book where he simply set forward the sum of Christian belief and called upon Marcus Aurelius himself to believe it. The emperor rejected that. But what Justin did was he held forth the gospel to his persecutor in a way that was faithful and yet in a way that simply did not march him down to the arena to face the lions. And John Calvin did the same when he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He initially set out to simply give a, a, a helpful explanation to Christians, to help them know what it is that they were to believe. But as he faced persecution in his native France and was exiled from France, he wrote in the beginning of that book an address to the ruler of France, to the prince of France, with the same message, Stop killing us. This is all we believe. Read it. See it. See that it is good. See that it reflects the testimony of Scripture. And in so doing, both Justin and John Calvin were loving their enemies. They were holding forth the gospel, but they weren't doing it simply in a way where they marched up to the throne room and said, here I am, take me. In our own context, we've seen the same kind of thing. For example, during the pandemic, we saw in different parts of our country, there were churches that were shut down, that were told they were not allowed to meet under any circumstance whatsoever. And rightly, they looked in Scripture and saw that they had a they had a responsibility, that they had a duty, a command from the Lord not to neglect to gather together. They had to do this in obedience to the Lord. And yet, they faced fines and other kinds of challenges because of this. Did they simply say, well, haul us off to prison? No, they pursued their case through the courts. And they were patiently pursuing it. And what happened as a result of that? The courts ruled in a way that was just, and that was to the benefit of everybody who wants to gather for any religious purpose, not just Christians, but anybody in our society. Is, it, the courts declared they are free by the law to gather freely in accordance with their conscience. And so these churches, they loved the people of this country by expending their time and expending their efforts and expending their money to pursue that case to the courts. It's the same with Christian business owners who have recently been sued because they won't offer services that are against their conscience. And yet, they've patiently endured reviling and they've pursued their cases through the courts and they've sought justice at great personal expense in their time and in their money. And yet, the courts ruled in their favor. And in our favor, we are blessed. We are blessed because of that, because of their love for others, and not just us, but anyone who would seek to act in accordance with his conscience. Do you see how, in a complex situation, these are acts of love for neighbor, and yet they don't simply 
roll over and say, well, we have to take what's coming without standing up for what's right and just in an ordered way, in a right way. And we can go on and on and talk about ways in which we can apply this text while seeking justice in the present. But we must always be ready for the possibility that our government will not rule in our favor, that those who are appointed to uphold justice will not uphold justice. And in cases like that, we need to be ready to forfeit even our lives, ready to even go to our deaths or to lose all that we own for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And in this, we will then be examples of what Christ was and is for us. And I'll simply conclude with these words from 1 Peter chapter 2, describing the way in which he modeled and practiced the very thing he preached. In 1 Peter 2, verse 19 and following, we read, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God make us like his son. May he make us like this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you now recognizing that just as we cannot understand your word apart from your gracious revelation to us, we also cannot live the life to which we are called by your son, unless you graciously work in us to conform us to his image, to will and to work for your good pleasure. So we simply ask, Lord, that you would do this in us. Impart these words to our heart. Engrave them on our hearts so that we might be hearers of your word and doers of your word forevermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.